Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to The Reset Show, episode number 15. Today's theme is lessons from CX and UX, or customer experience and user experience, to give them their full titles. And we have a double A side for you today on the show, for those of you who remember the good old days of vinyl. Not, not one, but two special guests are spoiling us by joining us to share their experience. We're delighted to welcome Kerry Hughes and Paul Bailey from leading global design and innovation consultancy, Spark. More from Kerry and Paul in a moment. A quick 10 second bio for Paul, who is the head of design at Spark. Over 20 years experience in creating innovative solutions with some of the world's best known brands and organizations. Paul loves solving human-centered problems with design thinking, technological insight, and a little bit of magic. You'll like it, not a lot, but you'll like it. And there's another 80s reference for the older viewers. Finally, Paul is, to my mind, the first person to call himself a design thinking dad. So welcome to Paul. Uh, And a 10 second bio for Kerry, service designer at Spark, uh, and most importantly, a contributor to the recently published Destined to be a best-selling book, EX by Design. You know who you are. Kerry uh, is passionate about the importance of customer-led design that considers the entire customer journey, ensuring a solution that combines CX and UX best practice. So a perfect person to join us today. Before I hand you over to Emma and B to get this party started, let me say a big thank you, as always, to our producer, Katie, and my co-hosts, Emma and B, our live studio guests who have joined us today for the recording. Hello to you. And of course, to you, whether you are watching this show on YouTube or listening to the podcast, you are all very welcome. That's all from me. I'm going to hand over to Emma now to give you a bit of a refresh as to what the research show is all about. Over to you, Emma. Thank you, Justin. Hello, everybody. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of background as to what the research show is all about and continuing the the theme of records. Starting to feel like a broken record. See what I did there. But um, I'm mindful that there are people who have joined us the first time, you might not know what this is all about. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. So the Reset Show has been going for many, many months now. I think you said it's show 15, Justin. Um, And we we decided to start the Reset Show to really bring together a brilliant guest, like-minded network of people who want to use the opportunity of COVID to make the world of work better for people. Um, And that's in a nutshell, that's what we're here to do. Um, We have brilliant conversations every fortnight. We have fantastic guests. So without further ado, I'm gonna hand over to B to get the the party started, over to you, (laughs) B. Thank you, I'm gonna get the party started. Um, Yeah, we're all about human-centered design, design thinking, creativity, innovation. So that's what we're gonna be focusing on. Um, So yeah, really delighted to have Paul and Kerry here. As Justin said, Kerry, 
um, was a contributor to our book on pro experience by design. And in the book, we draw a lot um, with um, pride from design thinking. Um, so it's really great to, to sort of delve a little bit more into that and to, to explore some of the links and the opportunities, things that we can borrow from the world of customer experience and um, land into the world of employee experience and culture and people and all that good stuff in organizations. So Paul, I think I'll, I'll come to you first, if I might, just give us just give us a little potted history of Spark. Tell us a little bit more about the business. Sure, yeah. Thanks, Belinda. Well, great intro from Justin. Thanks. That's best intro I've had so far, I think. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so Spark, we're a leading global design and innovation consultancy, uh, but we're part of a much bigger organisation called BGSS, uh, and BGSS are the largest independent IT consultancy in the UK, uh, and Spark are essentially the design arm uh, of BGSS. We're I think 70 plus now, uh, designers across strategy, research, product design, service design, and content designers. We work with people like NHS and the Met Office, ITV, Amnesty International, uh, to help them really harness the power of, of digital technology in new ways. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Kerry, I'm going to come over to you. I know that until relatively recently, you are in financial services. So Tell us, a, I'm kind of projecting, I guess, a little bit here about what that experience from financial services to, to full-on cool design agency is like. But tell us a little bit about that journey. So, yeah, I've been, I've spent the last, oof, yeah, five years, five plus years in financial services. Strangely, it's a very exciting place to be. And, and we've got the challenger banks to sort of thank for that because they really have turned um, the way banking had to consider what it does um, on its head. So it's been a really exciting time. Um, but, you know, there are there are sort of challenges um, of being in a big financial institution um, around sort of legacy systems, silos, you know, all that, all that good stuff, the internal politics and regulation, regulation, whilst is it's, it's a great thing, right? None of us are ever going to be against regulation. It's really fantastic. But from a design perspective, you've then got to make that work for the customer. We, we, uh, we coined a phrase called positive friction, which was really important in banking. And it's all about, okay, it's okay to have systems to thinking, which is where when we're making decisions, we have to slow down and we have to think about things. And that was really how we could feel good about putting terms and conditions and legal documents in front of people, knowing that they just often just tick past them. We all do it. We all shouldn't, but we do. But hey. And then, yeah, I think my move into consultancy was really, I was acutely aware of moving between organizations that when you start in an organization, what you bring, what you have is this amazing fresh pair of eyes, this outside in thinking, um, you're energized, you haven't got the baggage of the organization at that point that, that comes with years, spending years in the same organization. And, and I could really recognize that moving to a consultancy and a design agency was going to always afford me that new perspective and bringing that into organizations, being able to really see things clearly, um, you know, uh, and, and, and really bring that outside in thinking. And it's been amazing that the transition, you know, I haven't been, I've been with Spark since the beginning of the year, I've, you know, onboarded remotely, but to work in an organization where you're surrounded by other designers is just amazing. 
you know, if I've got a question. Oh, I know. I'll take to Slack and ask someone because someone will know. And it's the community, the design community is amazing in that way. So mm. it's been really good so far. Fantastic. Wow. What a time to start a new job. I'm always in awe of people <laughs> who have done that in the last year. It's like, wow, what is that even like? Um, thank you. So we've already talked about, well, we've sort of thrown around this expression design thinking. Now, design thinking is kind of like a an iteration, if you like, of, of human-centered design, but that in itself is just a bunch of words that can be a bit amorphous and difficult to get your head around. So I was wondering if you could both give us a take on what you mean by human-centered design and where it delivers and where it doesn't. Kerry, I'll ask you first. I'm sorry, Paul. <laughs> no, I think, I think that there's something interesting in that question. I think me and Kerry, we've spent quite a lot of time trying to think about where it doesn't work. Uh, and we, we actually really struggled to, to think about instances where it didn't work. We've got, we did come up with something in the end, but Kerry, why don't you give us your, your definition of human set design first and we can move on to that. Yeah, okay. So, um, you know, for, for me, I've had a journey. I started in CX in 2001 and I've had a journey along there. It was always very based on, on the person, on the customer. And, and I think that's the real the real nugget in human-centered design is it absolutely starts with the people and finishes with the people you're designing for. Now, we work in a, you know, we work in business environments. And so, of course, we need to layer that with feasibility and business um, and their strategy and objectives. But it's all about starting the process and and designing around that customer um, with lots of tools and techniques that um, enable you to sort of do that. So it's really putting them at the front and center um, of the design. Thank you. I'd love to know where it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I mean, guess coming on to my my view of human set and design, I often think about four key things. And if you want to really simplify it, firstly, it's about really understanding the problem. What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Uh, And then it's about understanding the people uh, in terms of who they are, where they are, the context of doing things. And then it's about the system in, in which everything kind of operates. And then ultimately, it's about designing in an iterative way. It's about uh, taking a non-standard kind of waterfall model where you go away and write a specification for six months and then present your ta-da and actually doing something small, uh, very kind of uh, and, and quick and actually getting feedback really early on. Uh, and I think that's, that's a, key, a key kind of principle around human-centered design is, is around those four, four things. Mm. Uh, one, one of the way I often describe it is, is, is for me, human-centered design is about making things better for people on purpose. So it's about mm. making conscious decisions about what it is that you are doing uh, based, on, based on people's needs and, and, and including them in the actual process. Uh, and I think that, again, that, that inclusion of people is, is really key. It's interesting, isn't it? it- on the, it sounds so well of course this is what human-centered design is but isn't this what everybody does anyway why is it so why is it even a thing it must be difficult or it wouldn't be a thing in, yeah. if we're not doing human-centered design what sort of design are we doing well I mean from from my personal experience being designed for like 20 years it's only really since I've joined Spark and I've been there just over three years that I've found somewhere that really believes in human-centered design approach and uh, an, an agile approach so that they're actually 
you know, in companies I've worked in the, in the past, you'd be given a brief and there's a problem to solve. And what you'd expect to do is go away, come with loads of ideas, and then you perhaps present three to the client and then they choose one and then you go and build it and deliver it. And then users would get to use it at the end. And, and, and they, this process could take, you know, six months on a large technical project and you'd have a team creating this design spec of 500 pages defining how this solution is going to work that a client would never read. And then we'd produce something and then wonder why people didn't enjoy using it. And I've worked in those kind of environments where that scene is like a safe way because it's, you can predict how much that design spec is going to cost to produce and you can predict how much that piece of software is going to be to, to develop. Whereas when you get into kind of an agile environment from a stakeholder perspective, that, that can be less clear at the start and yeah. it's, it's perceived as having perhaps more risk around it. And I think I think the 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 design that happens when it isn't human centered and can still be perceived as customer centric, but I kind of call it assumptive design. I've been Mm. I've been employed many times by organizations to be the customer and 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 I sit there and I can, you know, I'll do my best, you know, acutely aware that I'm not the user, you know, um, and and you know, and we'll collaborate internally, but it's, you know, it's very assumptive and, and lots of organizations are good at having research and having stuff that makes them good at those assumptions and making those assumptions, but they're still assumptions and you can still go a long way down the track and go, oh, we didn't get that right. Yes, that's that's so, that's so interesting. As you say, so many organizations have been spending so much money on research um, whether that's customer research or employee research for an awfully long period of time, but that is not the same thing as doing human-centered design. There's a missing bit there somewhere, isn't there? And is it? I know. Um, is that where this idea of the discovery phase comes in? Is there? Is what sits between? You know, if, if the gap. I love this. I love your phrase, Kerry, assumptive design. And um, but what sits between them? We've got loads of data. Let's create something. What, what do you do differently in in, the, in that gap? And I think it's something to do with discovery. So tell us a little bit more about that and why it matters. Shall I put that up, Kerry? Yeah, go for it. I guess, I guess from my perspective is is uh, it's making sure that you understand the needs of the users. So you've obviously got the business need. Business needs to do something. But is there a desirability to actually solve that problem? And is that problem something that is is viable? Can you actually solve it? Uh, And more often than not, I think, at least organizations that I've worked with in the past, they have a lot of assumptions about what they believe is needed. Uh, So, you know, in HR context, maybe they decide that, oh, we need new induction. Okay, well, we're going to get this this company that specializes in creating inductions to go and create one for us. Uh, And they don't actually then spend the time understanding what's actually needed uh, mm. from, from a user perspective uh, and what's actually missing. I think for me, the, the discovery part is having looking at those assumptions in a lot closer uh, detail and actually trying to understand the core problem rather than you know uh, going with the assumptions that you've got to actually go ahead and build something or create a new experience. Yeah, and to, to add to, to sort of add to that, you know, one of one of the reasons that that you know I kind of look to Spark when when I saw the job advert and got excited about it was knowing the importance of discovery and it and it can be quite hard in an organization to get them to spend time on 
discovery um you know and and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out a quote here from Einstein because it's where I always go and no one can argue with Einstein right and he <laughs> says there's there's two two quotes right and I'll do this one first any fool can know the point is to understand so mm-hmm. let's take that as our starting point and then the second one that he has um you know, uh, that that he's quoted to say is, if I had to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about solutions. And I think that really sums up what you're doing in the discovery space, right? So one of the biggest things that I had to train myself to do, and I have when I do workshops with people, I really, really, you know, help them to do is don't go to solutions, right? Because people have a habit of saying the problem straight to the solution. Oh, yeah. it's difficult because, oh, we could do this. And it's like, yes. no, no, let's, let, we won't allow ourselves. We won't do that yet. We're just going to absorb it all, immerse, really understand the problems, and then we can go to solutions. It's so interesting that you, you, you say that, Carrie, because I know obviously we work with um, people teams in, in, in all their guises, not necessarily customer teams, but absolutely we see that as the trajectory, which is that's wrong. Oh, let's do this. And, and it's that <laughs> lack of willing. And I, I'm, I always wonder whether it's because it's the sort of people that we work with. It tends to be very action oriented people, action oriented people or people who are, it was the nature of the function, which is there's a problem, solve it for me right now. So they jump to that, but I, it does sound like it's, maybe it's just human nature to jump to the solution rather than pause and sit in that problem space and that discovery space for longer. Yeah, we have a phrase at Spartan, we call it we're standing in the squiggle. So I don't know if you're familiar with the design squiggle, but that squiggly bit is quite uncomfortable. And, and initially, our uh, first reaction is to solve the problem. Mm. Uh, uh, and often that's where we then end up jumping to assumptions and maybe not, maybe not creating the best solution. Mm. Um, I'm going to throw a really unkind, it's not a question, it's a thought to Emma. It's almost like coaching, isn't it? It's like you know resisting telling somebody what to do versus helping them find that there feels like a parallel there I don't know if it's a useful comment or not definitely sit on your hands Justin obviously is also a coach in the room but yeah definitely um it's it's tempting to fix things for people isn't it so I think that's that's yeah it's it's interesting actually what you're saying there Paul because we we had this very conversation just this morning didn't we be um and and I, I I'd really love to explore with you guys being customer experience and user experience experts, what, what we can learn and apply to EX, because EX is like way behind you guys in terms of maturity and we're just starting the journey. And I think really prompted by the piece that Kerry did for the book, which was brilliant around, um, you know, just really challenging people in employee experience that, you know, Kerry's point about, you know, when you're researching, when you're gathering insight from a customer experience point of view, it's actually, you've got, to, you've got to put quite a lot of legwork in to find customers and bring them in. It's expensive and it's hard work. Whereas when you're designing employee experiences, we've, we've got like direct access to all of our people. So why are we so lazy about doing that? And why does that feel so difficult? So kind of just a few points in there just to kind of clarify that really. So that's really interesting for me, that, that piece around what we can learn from your disciplines in a, from an EX point of view. And also 
maybe one for, for our guests today. I want to know why we are not better in, in organizations at really doing that discovery piece, because there's a lot of resistance to it. And we work with so many clients that really resist the discovery scoping piece. No, 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 we, no, 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 just get straight to the point. I know we've got research. We've got, we've got employee survey data. We've got some demographics. That will do. We have to really work to convince them to do proper insight and research work. It's really hard work. So, sorry, a bit of a ramble there, but the first question really is, what can we learn from you guys in the world of EX? Uh, I guess. Yeah, go on, Paul, sorry. I mean, I guess you, some of the challenges you've got there is, is that they're not new to us. So uh, some clients will say, oh, it's, it's gonna be time consuming and expensive, right? And, and actually I'm under pressure. We need to deliver this thing quick uh, or, you've got somebody that's really excited about this great idea that they've had uh, and they're kind of seeing the research bit as a bit of a luxury that's kind of maybe something that they, they can't kind of afford. Uh, and, and sometimes I think people just convince themselves that they know enough and, and they're ready to start. But I think it's important to kind of take a step back because before you, you commit to building a, a new product or experience or a service, you really need to understand that problem to be solved because I, I think if you don't have that in-depth knowledge and understanding, you're at risk of actually building the wrong thing. Uh, and I think a lot of stakeholders, if you, if you shift the conversation from discovery and start talking about risk and costs, then suddenly the discovery doesn't seem quite as expensive as it first did when you first started to uh, discuss it. Uh, I, think, I think IBM does some really interesting research, and this is perhaps related more towards uh, software development, but they, their uh, system science institute found that fixing code after uh, it had gone live cost up to 100 times more than when if they'd have fixed it at the design stage. So if you start to pull out some statistics like that, mm -hmm. it helps to kind of facilitate that conversation to say, oh, actually, you know what, if we just rush in and we implement this new change that's going to go across the whole business, what's the impact if we get it wrong? What, what, what's the negative side? You know, what, what, what? How difficult is it going to be change, to change later on? So maybe then, you know, if you talk about it in terms of risk, uh, I think I think stakeholders in particular they, they start to listen a little bit more. Mm, yeah, and my experience is I was once gifted. Um, I was working for a building society and I was gifted this period to pull a design team together. We, we were building a whole new um, IT platform, right? So just building the whole lot from scratch. And um, whilst we kind of got the team set up, I was gifted with this period um, of discovery, pulling a design team together, um, really understanding customers. I mean, we were using a lot, we were using a lot of sort of secondhand research, but you know, you can do that sometimes, but we spent a good amount of time, 20 or I think it was 20 employees from across the building society. Um, we had a day at the Principality Stadium in Cardiff and we did a workshop um, mapping the as-is of the savings journey, the digital savings journey. And it was completely, you know, and then we took it back to the office and we put it on the wall and we had all these personas that we were developing and we had all this amazing stuff just stuck to the walls and and called it our customer room and then we bought in all the IT team all the solution architects and enterprise architects all the directors 
all the um, Exco. And then finally, we bought in the non-execs, right? So, so it was really every top down came and they saw this and the impact of it was absolutely amazing. So from my experience, there's things that, that people love to be able to, to sort of talk about. And that's to talk about the customers or the people that are being dis designed for in a, in a factual way. And, you know, doing discovery actually meant that when questions were thrown at us, when left of center requests came, we could quickly look at the data, look at the customer room, look at what we'd understood and everyone was on the same page. Um, and, you know, we could quash a lot of those sort of distractions that, that inevitably happen. So it saves a lot of time doing mm. it as well. Mm. Thank you both. Um, this is a nice springboard into one of the questions that's been coming up in the chat. Because um, I know Paul and Kerry have been focused on uh, talking. So... There's, there was two strands of questioning. I'll, let me come to the second strand first, because that's sparking some discussion amongst the, the live studio audience. So um, it was prompted by Sarah, who asked for top tips on how you keep your stakeholders warm and feeling progress when keeping in the discovery stage so that you stay in the squiggle. Um, we've had some thoughts from Anita, says obvious, yes, but involving them and their people, of course, especially any folks who... They keep close and trust. And I think further down as well, we had Megan was saying, sometimes also things is a fear of asking customers or employees for their feedback or involving them in the process. Sometimes because of a perception that doing so will cause customers or employees to perceive the business as not being knowledgeable or expert. I, they don't think they should have to ask. They think they should just know already. And other times it's that they're afraid of what they'll hear and not knowing how they'll respond to that feedback. Um, Let's come to Paul first for your thoughts on this, this question. I, I think uh, it's, it's a good question. There's a lot of elements to it, so I'm going to tackle one at yes, a time. Uh, I think firstly, I think uh, Anita talks about uh, involving them, and I think that's key. And that, that's not always easy. You know, sometimes you've got a stakeholder who's not particularly available and uh, hasn't got a lot of time to give. Uh, one of the things that we've done, I guess, a number of times is actually involve them in the early stages. So actually persuade them to come along to a workshop and actually hear firsthand from the users about their experience. Uh, and often in the early phases of uh, discovery, we would kind of focus a bit more heavily on that qualitative type of research. And we're looking for kind of stories and messages uh, to come out that we can share with stakeholders that help to kind of buy into the story of, of transformation. Uh, later on, we kind of move into more kind of quantitative data kind of phase of, of research, but really early on, we want to try and bring those stories to life and share them with stakeholders uh, on, a, on a really regular basis. Uh, the, way, the way that we work is usually in a kind of sprint cycle, which is a, a kind of two-week block usually, and in that two weeks, we're, we're delivering something, we're delivering value. So we're not disappearing for six months and then coming back and saying, ta-da, uh, we're doing some kind of playback on a regular basis for those key stakeholders to keep them in the loop uh, about the direction of the project that's going and sharing the insights as we actually go along. Uh, most of the time that works really well, particularly I think if you can use different media to tell those stories. So if you can use video, you can use imagery, you can use uh, proper kind of storytelling to, to bring 
these these pain points to life. I think that really helps to hit home. Yeah, that sounds that sounds um, very helpful. Thanks, Paul. So as much as possible, getting those stakeholders involved early on so that they get it some insight and also some ownership, I suppose, over the process. And then I really like this this um, uh, the way of using stories to to communicate the the process in these short bursts um because of course who can resist a good story um and of course using media to get that across what about you Kerry what what are your thoughts on 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 this sometimes tricky topic yeah well I I think I'll 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 pick up on on Megan's point because I think it's a really good one and 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 I think um this perception around if you need to ask are you the expert in the room right and and as a CX service designer as as working as a consultant right you have to be really comfortable with knowing that what you're doing is you're facilitating others right in gathering all of this information and you know you have to be really comfortable with knowing that you're not the expert in the room, but you're the expert of getting the experts to pass on their wisdom and you'll pull all that together. You know, you will synthesize that stuff. Um, you know, and, and flattery gets you a long way, you know, in, in with stakeholders and, and SMEs, as we call them, our subject matter experts, you know, they really do know a lot. Um, and, and you learn the ones in an organization, and this isn't always the ones that are most vocal or stuff, but, but you'll learn in an organization, and this is the benefit of being in-house, is that you learn who is good at this stuff, right? Because not everybody is. Asking some people to go to a workshop and imagine that they don't know all the processes that they know and to be the customer and to, you know, to forget all that stuff. I know that you do that in your day-to-day job, but can you just park that at the door, right? For some people, that is a big ask okay and for others it's really simple um you need a good cross-section you need it to be diverse um you know and inclusive and all those good things but you know um, use those people and and embrace the fact that what you're doing is you are these people are providing that expertise and that is how you will design a good experience that's um i'm I'm thinking about the connections that this that are back to actually humans themselves uh, and how humans communicate. Um, I've been making some notes as you've been talking because one of the things that we like to do on the show is have a dual focus. So we talk about organisations, so the topic through an organisation perspective, and then we also like to talk about it through a personal perspective. So um, because our, our viewers are, are are mixed, some people are. are work in this area and some people work in um, other areas and one of the things that strikes me is to pick up on Belinda's point earlier about coaching is um, and I'm going to nick this one from you Carrie. thank you positive friction <laughs> because that is something that I see all the time with uh, with leaders all the time that they have they've uh, to a large extent survived on their wits on their system one thinking you know that ability to make those calls quickly and slowing them down and engaging that system two thinking is really uncomfortable for them like you said they don't like it um, um experts or people who are good at doing 
things and perceive that that's why they're paid find it very uncomfortable so it might be a subject that they're that they're not knowledgeable about but more interesting i think it's people is we you know we can't possibly know about other people so we have to engage some some positive friction in there to slow down and to really embrace that squiggle you know when you're working with people that's that's where you need to spend most of your time isn't it? i mean there's so many connections in terms of questioning the assumptions you make so well how do you question the assumptions you make about people well you, you have the conversations with them and it's only in the actual conversations with the real people which is similar to what you're saying about you have to actually talk to the real customer there's no use you know talking to someone who's a bit like them or has a good idea so um i am a magpie um so i've collected things over the over the course of these um three set shows and we refer the one from the last one was champagne uh champagne test which is this lovely thing of you know i think you were there carrie but like try it out on yourself uh, and if you like it, well, then try it out on others. You know, it's that thing of, well, if you want to decide what champagne to buy, so try one yourself. Oh, that's nice. Just, you know, try it out on yourself. So this one today is, is positive friction. Um, I don't want to ramble off too much, uh, but I thought it was interesting for the listeners who are particularly focused on, on a personal angle that there's so much that we can take from what you're sharing about organizations and, and apply it back to humans. And it feels to me like, what we're describing is organizations preference for things to be binary so it's either this or this it comes from our human preference doesn't it we don't like being mm. in gray we like it what it's either one thing or another so what we're doing is finding ways of playfully inviting people to to spend some time in the gray um be back over to you thank you so much yeah i've, I've kind of spotted an interesting tension in in this um which I probably won't explain very well. So I totally agree with everything you said and, and, and it's finding it really fascinating. And there's two sort of count, contrasting data points here, which I know both to be true, but I can't resolve them. So let me try and explain. One which is standing in the squiggle is deeply uncomfortable because as humans, we don't like not to know. So we want to rush to solutions. So that's one data point. The other data point is the fact that taking this and design thinking approach, human-centered design approach and, and involving collaborators is, is deeply viral in the best sense of the word in that people really love being part of the process. And I'm sure you know Darden Business School's Jean Litka and her research about how, and Anita, thank you, you've, you've reflected on this as well in the chat, about how people love being part of the process and how actually the more people you can get involved in the design process, it becomes viral and people start adopting some of this approach in their own work as well. There seem to be two contrasting data points, one which is it's really uncomfortable, the other one which is people love it and they want to do more of it. What, what, what's missing? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll quickly pick up from my experience is, is when you're involving people, it's quite an easy ask, right? So tell me about your experience. Yeah, let's map this out. Let's think about the stages you're going through. Even though... You know, sometimes if I think specifically about customer experience mapping, I'm asking them to take their business hat on and put their customer hat on. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the uncomfortable part, I think, is for designers designing it and not knowing, right? And we mm. say all the time in this job, when you're doing this, when you're doing design thinking, when you, you have to get uncomfortable, you sorry, you have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, mm -hmm. 
right? Mm. And, and when I learned that, it's really, really, really valid. It's okay that I'm feeling like I know nothing and I'm never going to be able to get to the end of this. Oh my God, I'm out of my depth. I'm overwhelmed. It's absolutely okay because time and time again, actually you get there, right? Because you just mm. break it down. And, you know, I've been thinking about the squiggle and actually when I think about myself in the squiggle, I'm just looping round and round and round and round, and round <laughs> for quite a lot. And then I can, and then I'm kind of there, and I might loop round again a bit later, um, and that's absolutely fine because if I get new data, if I get new insight, that's good. So I think the uncomfortable part is probably for the designer and for the stakeholders, for those more senior stakeholders, right, who've got a lot at stake and 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 we have to remember that which is why involving them in the process and giving mm. them the confidence in the process is really important mm. um but for the people that you're engaging along the way that are subject matter experts um you know in in the in the instance of employee experience who've just been onboarded who are having a nightmare with you know some aspect of what it of the colleague experience you know it's just real for them actually and it's really therapeutic for them to go to a space and to be listened to the the thing you have to be really careful with is that and this is where stuff can go wrong Paul and I when we were talking about where human-centered design can sometimes can't work and stuff and that's if you just keep asking right? You just keep doing the surveys. You just keep collecting <laughs> the same insight over and over again and do very little with that. So, so people get fatigued by collaborating and, and, and doing the input when they don't, when there's never or, or little output. That's yeah. I, I, I think it's Lindsay Bowsman who's one of a, another contributor in the book. She talks about not being, not turning herself into an asshole. Um, <laughs> I love that I might be misattributing it but it's just a fabulous fabulous oh, one brilliant. so Paul I'd love to know um what about the this idea of human-centered design going viral because you know people participate Jean um Ledger talks about it being almost like a form of change management in itself so yes you're working on a problem or working on realizing an opportunity but actually you're creating change you're creating the way you're changing the ways of working in the process do you see that happen yeah, I mean, uh, over the last year, well, what year are we in now? <laughs> last <laughs> year, <laughs> uh, we worked on a, a really big project with the Driving and Vehicle Standards Agency, and they're responsible for uh, ensuring road safety in the UK, and they, they conduct all the practical and theory tests across the UK. And uh, the challenge that we had was taking a, a paper-based service, which was probably I don't know. I mean, I took my driving test a long time ago and the service was exactly the same. It had not changed in like, I don't know, 25 years or so. Uh, and the the audience there, there's about 1800 driving examiners that are based across the UK and about one in six are aged 50 plus and uh, scored themselves fairly lowly on the digital inclusion scale and were fairly resistant to change, you know, early on. And uh, we took a kind of co-creative approach right from the start. And we did a number of things, really. Firstly, we started with an experience. So we recreated a driving test centre in our office in Nottingham. We got the key stakeholders there. We got the whole of the project team. Uh, and we recreated the end-to-end -end driving test experience. We had a, 
uh, a video of a real driving test. We've got some Wii steering wheels and we, we got people to actually conduct the test as almost like as a bit of performance. It was like a bit of drama uh, in front of the whole team. And we also enabled the whole team to actually go out and meet driving examiners. So they actually got to meet the user. So they might have been developing software or they might have never had any uh, contact with users otherwise. So we, we actually took them to a driving test center uh, where they sat on a live test with a candidate uh, and had the opportunity to actually meet and talk to users. Uh, not long after that, we, we got something out. So we shipped uh, an app to them within about two months. So within about two months, driving examiners had a kind of prototype app that they could start looking at uh, and experimenting with. We knew it wasn't perfect. We knew uh, there was a lot of things that needed to be improved. But what we wanted to do is give them something tangible that they could start looking at and start providing feedback to us uh, and start the conversation about what's wrong, what needs to change, how can we make this better? Uh, and at the same time, we, we, uh, we had a, a group of early adopters where driving uh, examiners uh, chosen for their various kind of levels of, of digital kind of confidence. And they were from across the UK and we brought them to, to Nottingham, we conducted workshops with them. And we, we essentially made them an extended part of our team uh, so we had 20 to start off with, and that grew to 40 as the project kind of developed. And they were able to provide us with feedback and help us conduct usability testing. Uh, and we'd have bi-weekly calls with them to find out what's happening in their test center, how people were getting on, help us iron out problems. And we also used that then as a way to actually conduct research and find out where the lowest levels of confidence were across the country and make sure that we actually visited uh, those users in those areas to understand what challenges they had. Uh, and the project went really well. Uh, we got some fantastic feedback from the government digital uh, services, which uh, monitor all software that's been developed within the public sector. Uh, we got 100% user adoption. So even though we had those one in six that were low in confidence, mm. uh, and a lot of that was because as we were going about doing all this stuff, we were sharing it. Mm. So we were involving them in that process. Mm. We helped DVSA to create a Yammer site, which had lots of traction. There's a lot of interest in this across the agency. Uh, and when they could see that actually we'd been to Manchester and we were there at eight o'clock on a Tuesday morning, turning up with giant post-it notes and bits of sellotape and working in a kind of co-creative way with driving examiners to really mm. understand what they need. Uh, I think it really helped to, to create a lot of buy-in. Uh, and in many ways, you know, we were talking earlier about this kind of qualitative approach. We had some things that came out of the early stages. So I, I met a driving examiner in Glasgow and he said, the challenge that you've got here, Paul, I can't do a Scottish accent, by the way, I'll try. <laughs> is you've got to design something that works with blind dinosaurs with sausage fingers. Uh, and, and that became a kind of principle, you know, all design decisions thereafter, we, we'd measure it against this quote that was given by, a driving examiner and other driving examiners could relate to that they, they could yes. understand uh what was needed so for us that that was a brilliant a brilliant example of how mm. human-centered design and co-creation can work to make make things easier for people yes and create advocates and champions for the eventual rollout once you get yeah. there um thank you i realize that we're at, we're probably coming up towards time so i'm going to flip to emma who will probably then pass back to Justin to wrap us up. But I love that example. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, just um, just reflecting on there's a, there's a few elements in there, Paul. I mean, um, you know, we, we talk about 
um, involvement as one of the enablers of engagement. We added one extra onto the four enablers and we added a fifth one, which is involvement. And we, you know, in the book, we talk a lot about, you know, using the best of the world of positive psychology and design thinking. And I think, you know, there's such, such an interesting kind of uh, fusion of ideas and, and tools and techniques because, um, you know, I think, as you say, that the, the, the process itself is really engaging, like, oh, thank like, goodness for that, you know, someone's asking me what I think about this because I know, and I've just sat here waiting for someone to notice that I've probably got some, some good stuff to share. It's very engaging. And there's also the point that I think is particularly relevant for employee experience should be for all experiences but for employee experience which is the point of us doing this is to help people thrive in the workplace and be their best selves at work that's why we're doing this so it feels like there's a really great fit between you know my background of positive psychology and um you know dab dabbled in design thinking over the years many times but i don't have any kind of formal qualifications in it and and um you know this the, the design thinking kind of approach and mindset just feels like a really really good fit and i wonder if you, you guys had any thoughts on that Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's um, it's a perfect fit. I, I, you know, I think that the the design process, human centered design, can be applied in many walks of life, um, even in your personal life. We all do this every day, and I think to your point about formal qualifications and that sort of stuff, you know, it, 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 it's because. It's, it's relatively new. You don't go and get an MA in it. You know, that it is happening. It is starting. I think younger people coming through will have that. But you know what? A lot of this is, you know, to, to say it's not rocket science, right? It's 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 about going through a process. And, and Paul and I were discussing, we'll put, we'll put in the notes some links. There's some really great resources and tools for people to DIY this. You know, you, you can go out and you can do this. There's, there's workshops already put together for you. There's mural boards already put together for you. You just need to be the facilitator um, and, and go through these steps. And, and it's not prescriptive you can you know you will squiggle around you know you mm -hmm. it, it never is completely linear um but yeah that's I don't know if you've got anything to add to that Paul yeah I mean I think I think sometimes we uh we perhaps need to simplify the, the way that we describe this stuff you know we talk about mm -hmm. EX and UX and human-centered design and like what does that what does that mean really uh, and essentially it's just about solving problems so everybody, will, everyone's got problems, right? So how do you solve them? Uh, what's what's a good process for figuring stuff out? And I mean, I think Justin gave me a bit of a big up at the beginning as design thinking dad. And essentially, the concept around that is is uh, I've I've got four kids, uh, and in my life, I guess they're my biggest pain point. Uh, so how do you solve that? You know, how do you work with them to create an awesome day when you've got four different opinions and four different views about how that day should go? Uh, so what do you do? You do a, you know, you do a workshop, don't you? Of course, you pull out some post-it notes and you get everybody to contribute their ideas and then you map it out in a kind of loose journey map and you stick it on a fridge and you take a picture of it and everybody's happy. Uh, so a lot of these processes are not difficult at all. They're actually really straightforward. If a, if a four or five-year-old can do it, then why can't you do it in the office? No, I love that. and highly recommend uh, everyone checking out your Design Thinking Dad's uh, video that I saw I think it was on, was it on YouTube so it was brilliant highly recommend that just interesting just before we, we, we wrap up um we, yes problem space but we've kind of evolved that a bit haven't we being 
use the positive psychology kind of strength-based approach. We, we try and talk about opportunities. Let's find opportunities. And I think that really helps internally. People, positive psychology is a great tool to, um, it's a very comfortable kind of process to go through because it's not pointing the finger and saying this is wrong and it's not working, which can feel quite aggressive sometimes. People get very defensive about their, you know, their, their process or their procedure, whatever it might be. So we talk about, you know, how can we improve it? How can we find the opportunity space? So that just really helps in terms of reframing that slightly. So back over to you, Beatrice, to uh, summarise and finish up then. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, I've just absolutely loved the conversation. Um, I love talking. I, I, I like to think I'm a student of design thinking. Um, and um, just every time we have these conversations, I learn more and more. So um, I think, yeah, absolutely. I love that standing in the squiggle. I think there's so much richness here and there's so much that people can go and just, just experiment with. I don't think you can necessarily break anything or go wrong. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing. It's been great having you here. Just Justin, any final thoughts from you? Thank you, uh, Belinda. Yes, I have a final thought and I have a final quote. And the quote I'd like to share with you has just been prompted by Anita uh, in the chat who said, keep interest and curiosity open. So, um, Kerry, you probably know this one, but I'm going to uh, finish with an Einstein quote, which <laughs> is, I have no particular talent. I am only passionately curious. It's good enough for Einstein. It's good enough for us. Thanks again to Kerry Hughes and Paul Bailey from Spark for joining us. Thanks to our live studio audience for getting involved and enriching the conversation. Um, next up, friends, on the Reset Show on Wednesday, the 24th of March, is Getting Started with Employee Experience, where we'll be joined by, amongst others, a special guest, James Hampton, from Sea Salt and uh, a brief plug if you haven't already subscribed, please do. Apart from being the first to know about upcoming shows, you will also receive the vital follow-up resource packs that I know in the chat people have been very keen to get a hold of. So that's some links and resources that we put together, curated by uh, Katie with some input from our guests in terms of further reading, further listening, further watching. So you get all of that goodie bag sent to you as well, but only if you subscribe. And as a special request, if you are listening to the podcast, if you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to like and rate the show as it's super helpful for us to reach more people, share the love and these great conversations. That is it from us for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Go well, and we will see you next time. Bye for now.